We are all living in a different world nowadays. COVID-19 has impacted us in ways large and small. Today, we'll be joined by Dr. David Katz, who has been on the front lines of fighting the coronavirus. We'll discuss his organization, True Health Initiative, what they are doing to fight the coronavirus, which countries are doing the best at fighting the virus, and who is most at risk. We'll also be talking to Dr. Katz about his new book, How to Eat, All Your Food and Diet Questions Answered. We'll discuss how to balance your diet and the healthiest foods for you to consume. We'll see what Dr. Katz and science suggest. Welcome to Be Healthistic, the podcast that's more than just health and wellness information. It's here to help you explore your options across traditional and natural medicine so that you can make informed decisions for you and your family. This podcast illuminates the whole story about holistic health by providing access to the expertise of Drs. Steve and Drew Sinatra, who together have decades of integrative health experience. Be Healthistic is powered by our friends at Healthy Directions. Now, let's join our hosts. Hi, folks. If you like what you hear today and you want to listen to future conversations on all things integrative and holistic health, subscribe to our podcast at BeHealthisticPodcast.com. Also, check out and subscribe to the Healthy Directions YouTube channel, which features video versions of our episodes, plus extra videos you won't want to miss. And finally, we have more with me, Dr. Drew Sinatra, my dad, Dr. Steve Sinatra, and other health experts at HealthyDirections.com. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Be Healthistic. Um, We have Dr. David Katz on the show today, and we're going to talk about two different things. One, COVID-19, as he's been involved in it for so long now, and he's been on television talking all about it, and also discussing his new book, How to Eat, All Your Food and Diet Questions Answered. So, David, I got to ask you the question right off the bat. When you wrote that article, that op-ed article in the New York Times, is our fight against coronavirus worse than the disease? When you were about ready to press send, did you have any hesitation? (laughs) (laughs) You know, to be honest, everything that's being said and and, um, all the strategizing about COVID should come with a bracing dose of humility, Drew. And I felt that way every step of the way. This is really unprecedented in living memory. It's the greatest public health crisis of of the ages. Um, You know, you could... You, people are comparing this to the flu pandemic of 1918, but you know we haven't had anything like this. And and so, you know, the, the best you can do is, is look carefully at all of the available evidence, identify the gaps, and, and try to apply informed judgment. But yeah, I'm I'm always really cautious about everything. So I, I thought twice about clicking send there. Um, <laughs> But you know, it's an interesting story because my my op-ed ran in the New York Times on March twentieth. I wrote it ten days earlier than that, and you know, in, in a pandemic, every day is a month, every week is a decade. You know, right? I mean, it feels like we've been in this thing for lifetimes, and it's only been some number of months. So at the time I wrote it, we had not yet closed down universities. We had not yet sent kids back home to their families. And, and so, you know, I was looking at, at the early data about the pandemic from China, from South Korea, and, and there, there really was a pattern that appeared to be consistent around the world, and that was in 98 to 99% of all cases, this is a very mild disease, and it's in a, a small concentrated set of cases that it's a very severe disease. And in particular, young, healthy people 
have mild versions of this thing and are often asymptomatic. So I was reacting to that and thinking, you know, do you really want to shut down all of society and potentially wreak havoc with social determinants of health? You know, you're going to cause unemployment and poverty and desperation and depression and destitution and food insecurity. and Bad stuff happens when people are hungry and desperate. So I thought that that was my thinking. You know, if we shut down everything because a small group is at high risk, we may do more harm than good, and couldn't we achieve all the same good by protecting that selected group? And I, I was really thinking at the time, Drew, I don't know that we want to send college kids home because they appear to be in the very low risk group for the most part. Their parents, I'm not so sure. And their grandparents, certainly not, right? So it, you know, we send all these kids home. And by the way, we don't test them. We don't even take their temperature because we weren't even organized enough to do that in the United States in the beginning of all this. You know, I really was thinking we might take this virus you know, from populations where it's causing very little harm and send it into populations where it may cause a lot more harm. So yes, I, I hesitated before pressing send, but honestly, I'm glad I did because to this day, that really remains my perspective on all this. Fundamentally, the goal here from my point of view, was total harm minimization. At the start, in the middle, and through the end of all this, there's more than one way for a pandemic to hurt people. It can hurt them by infecting them. It can hurt them because people with chronic health conditions are too afraid to go get the attention they need. So people stay home and have their heart attack, or they stay home and have their stroke when they actually could have done much better with emergency medical care. And that's been an issue, too. And it can hurt them because of the way society reacts with you know, tens of millions of people unemployed and all of those reverberations. So my thinking was we really want to be looking in both directions. What are all the different ways this can hurt people? What are all the different ways we can minimize those harms? Minimizing all of those harms is a good thing. It seemed a good thing when I did hit send, however trepidatiously. Still seems a good thing now. So, so David... Taking what you just said, if you had to pick a country in the world who's doing the best job with this pandemic, what country would that be? I, in, honestly, Steve, I, I would hybridize. Um, it, it may be ultimately that Israel uh, mm -hmm. proves to be the answer because one of the things they're doing They've committed to representative random sampling of the population. And by the time this interview airs, you know, some of the things we're saying are uncertain, may be resolved right. and may have played out. Right. So trying to read tea leaves here. But but Israel has formally committed to representative random sampling of the whole population an effort to identify who's at higher risk, who's at lower risk, and, and essentially do what I've been describing as vertical interdiction. So horizontal interdiction, keep everybody away from everybody, keep everybody away from the virus. Well, you know, at the cost of shutting down society and tens of millions of people unemployed and so forth. Vertical interdiction says there's a high risk group that can't get this thing, that, you know, it's too bad a disease for them. Um, it's potentially lethal to them. It can overwhelm the medical system. They've got to stay away from it. And then there's a large segment of younger, healthy people that, for the most part, will have a mild illness. And, and you know, they can get through that. They can become immune. They can help us develop herd immunity all clear. So it looks like Israel may be adopting all of that. While we're waiting to see exactly what Israel does, 
Sweden is nine-tenths of the way there. So what my, my objection to the Swedish model is that I, I don't think they did quite everything they could to protect the vulnerable. So it's, you know, it's not just older people. It's not just people in nursing homes. It's also people with chronic disease. Honestly, I think Sweden could have had their cake and eaten it too if they said, all right, we're not going to shut everything down, but we are going to look very carefully at who is at higher risk and make sure we protect them. I still think that's the best way to go. So it's sort of a hybrid between Sweden, Israel, you know, some of the uh, countries in, in Asia, arguably South Korea, which did a really good job of initial interdiction and then open back up. Um, Singapore has done some of that as well, selectively exposing the population. So, so you know, again, I, I, I really can't pick any one country that I think has completely nailed it, because what I would really like to do is say, let's look in our own population and identify which groups tend to get hospitalized, which right. groups tend to have severe disease, who are all of them? Because, you know, again, it's not just older people, it's people with diabetes, it's people with heart disease. And then I think, Steve, you could do a really refined job of risk stratification. And you almost need individual risk calculators, which, which are available now, by the way. And so, you know, essentially you enter all your numbers, my sex, my age, my height, my weight, my health status and so forth. And here's my risk of hospitalization or severe infection. And, and you know, we really could almost tailor policy to multiple tiers of risk and decide what level of protection you need. What are the recommended practices for you, given your risk here? And you know, I don't think there are just two. I don't think there's just high risk and low. Maybe there aren't just three either, high, low, and in between. Maybe there are five. Maybe there are seven. Right. Yeah. And and that ought to be data driven. And you know, again, there, there's some interesting models around the world, but I, I haven't seen any country thus far, at the time we're having this conversation anyway, do it exactly the way I, I think would be optimal in terms of minimizing total harm. But but Sweden and Israel are standouts. So if you brought that down to an individual basis, would you say that the greatest risk would be an aging male with diabetes, heart disease, and uh, overweight status? I mean, to me, see, diabetes, overweight status, and heart disease is like the, you know, the triad that I, I would see in yeah. my practice, you know, right. on a day-to-day -day basis. So but the good news there is you can do a lot with, you know, type 2 diabetes and with weight reduction, et cetera, et cetera. So, so basically, I think the message to be, if you're high risk, at fix least it. you can do something about it. <laughs> fix it. Amen. Fix yeah, it. So, that's right. You know? Fix it. Yeah. So Steve, and that's the message I think we need to get to people. I totally agree. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm tempted to just say amen. Next question. Um, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. So, so a few things. First, uh, you know, sex, hard to fix. Age, hard to fix. And, and by the way, I did three volunteer shifts in an emergency department in the yeah, Bronx. Yeah, I saw so, you know, that the, line, yeah. The yeah. calls went out for volunteers, and I, you know, I, I want to be part of that. I want to chip in. It was a modest contribution. I did three 12-hour shifts, but you know, it, it gave me the, the frontline view. And you know, quite simply, it was ambulance after ambulance from nursing homes for the most part. So you know, we're talking about either younger people, so 60s, 70s, with really severe disease, or really old people with moderately severe disease. So people over 80 with heart disease, diabetes, dementia, et cetera. It, you know, to be honest, it, it was the same demographic that routinely fills up the emergency department. The only difference was everybody had COVID. But exactly right. So there are the things we can't fix, age and sex, but then overwhelmingly, 
the contributors to risk of severe infection are the, the burden of chronic disease in our population that's been fixable. And I completely agree with you, Steve. There's never been a better time to focus on that because, you know, in a sense, it, the, the, the human nervous system is hardwired to, to rapid threats, right? I mean, it's, it's a product of evolutionary biology, the savannah. It's the fight or flight response. If it's coming at you in seconds or minutes, maybe hours, barely days, you know, I mean, that's about as much as we can, we can perceive, we are activated, we are triggered, and, and we want to do something about the threat. But, you know, the things you just described, obesity, heart disease, diabetes, they're threats that play out over years and decades. We're completely oblivious, right? So, so you and I have a really hard time selling to the public the importance of preventive medicine, lifestyle as medicine, right. this is fixable stuff. But what COVID has done is, is essentially taken these chronic liabilities and turned them into an acute fight or flight response. Oh my God, this thing could kill me tomorrow. Right. Well, that's a teachable moment because it's actually the same bundle of risk factors that were potentially going to ruin your life before that now place your life in acute peril. And by fixing the one, we can fix the other. So I don't think there's ever been a better time for, you know, Get Healthy America campaign. And mm. if I ran the zoo, which obviously I don't, one of the priority policy responses to all this would be a, a, a federally coordinated, um, you know, pull out all the stops and let's help our entire population get as healthy as possible. Let's make obesity go away now. Let's make type two diabetes go away now. Let's, and, and not just the people, you know, who have the resources to engage, Let's get out into the communities of particular need. You know, one of the other things that's emerged with the epidemiology of COVID is that African-Americans are especially hard hit. Right. That has nothing to do with skin pigment, obviously. That has everything to do with socioeconomics and disparities and inequities, right? So same thing. Pressure, diabetes. Exactly. Everything. All the stuff you're talking about. So it never been a better time to fix all that. And, and we know how to do that. So the greatest reframe of COVID-19 is this. Maybe the 100 million plus diabetics in the country, a lot of them are type two, where if we can shift their weight 10, 15, 20 pounds down, drive their hemoglobin A1Cs down, now we take away the home where all these inflammatory cytokines are going to live. So maybe we can turn this into a positive. And that's what I'd like the audience to hear. If, if you are pre-diabetic or insulin resistant or diabetic and you can switch it around, boy, that's, that's phenomenal. Now your risk of COVID-19 plummets. Exactly so. right. Totally agree. Yeah. So, you know, it, there's the acute benefit. You can you can quiet your adrenal glands down. You don't need the yep. fight or flight response. Hey, I'm in the low risk group now. And it's the gift that keeps on giving because the benefits of that yep. don't go away once this pandemic is behind us. Totally agree. David, I got a, I got a question about where are we going with all this? Because right now we've we've essentially flattened the curve. We're going to slowly start to open things up over time. My concern, my fear going forward is that we're going to repeat the exact same thing all over again, who knows, in a couple of months, the fall, winter. And uh, wh where do you see this going, uh, considering all the lecturing you've, do, you've done and, and television and all that sort of stuff? You know, nobody really knows for sure. The best you can do, you can look back at, at flu pandemics. Um, you can look at, at other emerging infections. 
And, you know, they're sort of the known knowns, Drew. So, you know, there are things we know about this. We know the risk differentials and so forth. They're the known unknowns related to vaccine development timeline and potential for, you know, further mutations of the virus. And then they're the unknown unknowns. You know, is this going to occur in waves? Why are some countries hard hit now and other countries are not hard hit, even though it doesn't seem to have anything to do with their interdiction strategies? And sometimes there are neighboring countries where you see very different epidemiology. Is it going to come back in waves? Are we just waiting to see more of this in the fall? A lot of this really falls in the realm of the unknown unknown and, and requires us to be humble. My hope is, though, that we have actually had a lot more exposure than we realized. One of the things we, we did really poorly in the early going was test. And the value for testing is, you, you know, the denominators, right? I mean, you, you're not going to miss people who need the ICU. You're not going to miss people who need a ventilator and you're not going to miss deaths. But what you will miss is asymptomatic cases and very mild cases where, you know, nobody seeks medical attention in the first place. If you don't know those numbers, you really have no idea what the risk is. Because, you know, if if 10 people wind up in your ICU with the same condition, it may look like it's a terrible disease. But if it's 10 out of 10 million who had it, you know, the risk of winding up in the hospital is one in a million. It's actually not that scary a disease. So the the, the limited windows we have to the world of the denominator, how many people have been infected, how many people have made antibodies, they're very encouraging. They seem to suggest, so for example, data out of New York thus far, you know, 20% of the population of the state may have already been infected. And, and interestingly, in the very early days, we had a natural experiment, Drew. We had the Diamond Princess cruise ship. Pretty much everybody was exposed, right? I mean, it was, they were all contained on a ship. And only about 20% of the people on the ship got infected. So, you know, is it just the case when you, when you see that number? And by the way, there have been several studies subsequent to this from different countries doing seroprevalence, how many people have mm -hmm. been exposed and made antibodies. And every time the range is between 19 and 21 percent. You know, at some point that stops being a coincidence and you're tempted to say, gee, I wonder if only about one in four, one in five people is vulnerable to getting this infection in the first place. Maybe there's just natural resistance and maybe about mm. eight out of 10 people have that. So if that's the case, if, you know, if, if seven or eight out of 10 of us are not likely to get this infection at all, and the remainder um, mostly have mild or asymptomatic infection and, and make antibodies, there's the possibility, the very hopeful possibility that we're actually much closer to herd immunity already than we realize. And there won't be a second wave because mm. people vulnerable to getting this got it. They got it. Most of them made antibodies. The people who got very sick either tragically died or recovered and now have antibodies. So, so my hope is that we're actually a long way toward the, the exit already. But I'm uncertain enough and, you know, I'm listening to people who have made a career out of studying pandemics, people like Mike Osterholm at the University of Minnesota, and he's very cautious. He said, you know, prior pandemics have fooled us. You know, we, we thought we were out of the woods and then we weren't and there was another wave. So we have to stay nimble. We have to stay humble and we have to react to empirical data. But I, I think the answers to, you know, how do we get through this? Yeah, we work on a vaccine. Yeah, we rapidly improve treatment, which, by the way, that's remarkable. You know, when I did my stint in the emergency room in the Bronx, people who would have been intubated the week before, just a week before, were not being intubated. They were being treated completely differently than they would have been the prior week. I, you know, I don't know about you, Steve. I've never seen anything in my entire medical career evolve as rapidly as that. I mean, just a 180 
in a week. So, you know, the, the rapidity with which docs around the world are learning this disease and learning how to treat it better is remarkable. So every day, every week, we're getting better at treating it. So that's going to continue. There'll be better and better treatments. There is the hope for a vaccine that'll fortify our ability to get to herd immunity safely. But if we're already a large way toward herd immunity and we get better at treatment, and my hope, Drew, and it, you know, it's partly prediction, partly hope, that you know we're through the worst of this, that the mortality mm -hmm. toll is gonna go down, that we'll be able to treat the very sick effectively. Um, and ideally our policies will shift in the direction of protecting those most vulnerable so they're least likely to be exposed and we can open up society more and more and go a long way back toward the normal we knew before, but I hope with some improvements, right? I mean, I kind of like the fact that the, the climate has had a breather during all of this, right? I mean, I, you know, and that, you know, we've discovered a lot of the work we thought required driving our cars actually can be done this way from home. Mm -hmm. And maybe some of that should continue. And telemedicine proves to be pretty convenient for many simple conditions. And, you know, why go to the, the doctor or the hospital if you can get what you need this way. So, you know, I, I think some of these adjustments that were COVID specific don't need to be COVID specific. I think they may be permanent improvements. Maybe we'll burn a little bit less fossil fuel going forward and, and all of that. So I'd fold that in too. And then finally, what, what your dad and I were just talking about, I, you know, I think there's just a huge opportunity for us to take health more seriously mm -hmm. and say, you know, chronic stuff that we were neglectful, you know, maybe familiarity was breeding contempt. COVID told us don't be contemptuous. This stuff can, you know, really come back to bite you. Maybe we'll take that more seriously. And then finally, uh, you know, I, I, I don't presume it to be true, but maybe we learned our lesson about public health and preparedness and we'll stop neglecting public health and stop dismantling the resources we need to be prepared for the next crisis because there will be some next crisis. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've been forewarned. The question is, will we be forearmed? We have to decide to be. I, I hope we will. Well, David, thank you so much for being a, a voice of reason in this time of fear. So continue doing what you're doing with COVID-19. I really, really appreciate it. Well, David, tell us more about this True Health Initiative and what that's going to help us do. So it's a 501c3 that I founded. And the, the primary reason, Drew, is just the world is so noisy now. And there are, there are fundamental truths about diet as medicine, lifestyle as medicine. And it's really hard to get the public to recognize what's true and react to it because there's so many competing messages. There, there was a time, you know, not all that long ago, when one really authoritative person could capture the public's attention. I think of Benjamin Spock, for example, you know, on the topic of child rearing, or, or T. Barry Brazelton. Um, you know, but that era has come and gone because we now have the blogosphere. Everybody's got a megaphone. Everybody can broadcast their opinion out into the ether and influence the zeitgeist. So, you know, I was really frustrated by, you know, 30 years in, in the trenches um, studying diet and lifestyle, recognizing the power of it. And yet we just keep going in circles doing silly things, right? Fad diet after fad diet. And, uh, you know, people can be talked into anything. And no matter how well schooled you are and no matter how reasonable you are, it's easy for the Internet to turn every expert opinion into a ping pong ball. He said, she said, and the public stays lost and confused. So I thought maybe there's a way to amplify the signal relative to the noise by not just pulling people together, but pooling a diversity of voices. So I started asking colleagues that didn't tend to agree about stuff, 
if they would agree to, I put a, a pledge together, you know, these fundamental principles, food, you know, should be, as Michael Pollan said, food, not too much, mostly plants, right? So, you know, whole food, minimally processed, plant predominant, all of that. Um, the proposition that we could eliminate 80% or more of all chronic disease with lifestyle, that the public deserves to know that, that we actually agree more than we disagree. And one after another, colleagues said, yeah, I'd sign up for that. Mm. And the next thing I knew, I had several hundred people from multiple countries and with their personal preferences ranging from vegan to paleo and everything in between saying we agree. And then the True Health Initiative was born. And the idea was we were going to communicate those principles uh, as a product of science sense and global consensus. We, we now have a council of directors roughly 500 strong from 45 countries, really a who's who in public health. And, and the mission is to add years to lives, add life to years, and help save the planet because there are very few healthy people on uninhabitable planets. So, you know, frankly, we just turned our attention to COVID um, because it's been the issue that, that's mostly worrying people when it comes to years in life and life in years. And, and here, you know, basically been taking advantage of my notoriety since I published in the New York Times and, and you know, had such a prominent role in, in uh, the media on this topic and, and have collated uh, a variety of, of materials from leading experts in risk modeling and mathematical predictions and so forth. Um, and we pulled that all together and made that available. So effectively, the True Health Initiative in this situation has served as my base of operations to try and help collect and share credible expert material that can guide policy through this and, and can help inform individual decision making. We're, we're trying, you know, we want people to be realistic about this disease. Mm -hmm. If you don't respect this virus, it's going to kill somebody you love. It deserves respect. On the other hand, you know, I think there's anxiety and dread out of proportion to the risk for most of us. And, you know, we, we've been trying to, to reveal both of those elements. So True Health Initiative really has been uh, a key aid to me in that effort. But our, our primary function, you know, is, is to take tried and true information about lifestyle mm -hmm. as medicine and make it common knowledge. That's great. I mean, we need more balance in this whole equation. And um, I love the fact that you're bringing lifestyle medicine into this because we all know how powerful diet, nutrition, stress reduction, all these things are for our health. So thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, let's shift gears and talk about your new book. Okay. It came out in March 2020. It's called How to Eat, All Your Food and Diet Questions Answered. And you co-authored it with Mark Bittman. Uh, can you tell a little story about um, how you two met and how this evolved? It's a great story, actually. And, and I think really a nice reality check for a world that's so divisive and, and you know, where civility has died. We met because uh, I picked a fight with him, basically. But, but a, a, a scholarly fight, a, a gentlemanly fight, if you will. So um, Mark is terrific. I, I suspect most people watching us will know of his writing for years in the New York Times. Extremely knowledgeable about food systems and agriculture and, and um, um, you know, equitable sourcing of food and just, you know, really, uh, and a great writer. So knowledgeable about all things food, a great cook. Obviously, he famously wrote How to Cook Everything. Um, and, and you'll note that our book is called How to Eat 
but not everything. <laughs> right. Uh, we did, th- you know, we, we wondered should that be in parentheses, how to eat, but not everything. Uh, but in any event, uh, in one of his columns in the New York Times, Mark was commenting about an epidemiologic study, and he concluded that excess dietary sugar was a risk factor for diabetes but obesity was not. And he was kind of pushed in that direction by the conclusion of the authors themselves, but it was wrong, you know, based on the data. So I, I sent him an email and said, you, you don't know me. I'm a fan. I enjoy your writing. I learn a lot from you, but with all due respect, what the hell do you know about epidemiology or research methods? And, you know, you kind of, you're out, out of your wheelhouse here and you've misinterpreted the study and here's what it actually said and here's what it actually meant. And I thought that would be the end of it. Cause I thought, you know, if he's put together like everybody else in the modern world, he'll call me names under his breath and never answer me. But he's not, you know, he's, he's, he said, Mia culpa wrote back, thanked me for correcting him, said, you're absolutely right. You know, I mean, it seemed like an important study, but you know, I'm not trained and please tell me more. And a beautiful friendship, you know, was born. I mean, we started corresponding. He was asking me questions from that point on about studies. I asked him questions about food systems and production and and one thing led to another, and you know, little by little, we sort of became friends, and and we were corresponding routinely. Um, he's been over to the house for dinner, and then you know, we we were just talking about how we had the, this complementary expertise, uh, mine in, in in diet, nutrition, and health, his in in food systems and cooking, and maybe we ought to do some writing together. So we pitched. He was writing routinely at this point for New York Magazine and Grub Street. We pitched to them. And they said, yeah, that sounds great. And, and we did an article called The Last Conversation You'll Ever Need to Have About Diet and Health or some such thing. And again, it's, it's, uh, it's not something that you necessarily want to say during a pandemic virus, but it <laughs> went viral. Um, so it was one of the most popular pieces New York Magazine had ever done. And so inevitably, after we called it or they called it The Last Conversation, they said, how about another one? So there was a sequel to the last conversation, which I, I joke has always sounded to me like, you know, breakfast after the last supper or something. But in any event, we did two of these and, um, and they were very popular and they were really fun and cheeky. And it was just it was like a conversation. You know, what about that? What about, you know, dairy and what about eggs mm-hmm. and what about fish mm-hmm. and what about grains? And 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 when we were done with the two of them, we wound up being nominated together for a James Beard Foundation Award in Health Journalism, uh, which was a big deal. We got to put on a tuxedo and everything. And we said to one another, you know, uh, these were lengthy columns, but they were still just columns. I think we've got more. Uh, how about we do a book? Same style, conversational, pull up a chair. We're at the coffee table. We're just kicking it back and forth. So we pitched that to Mark's longtime publisher, um, uh, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, and they said something along the lines of, hell yeah, and, and the rest is history. So here we are. But Mark's a good friend, and uh, you know, we, it's, a really, it's a rich relationship because um, there, there's just a lot of candor, and um, we both learn from one another. We can disagree, um, but we can, we can you know, disagree cordially and civilly from the very beginning to this day. So um, I really value the relationship, and, and the book was fun to do. And I really like the content because, you know, it's just it's an engaging book. It's it's a style I I hadn't seen done before. The whole thing basically is a conversation. And what are some what are some foundations from it that that you learned and that you that are in the book in terms of like what is sort of the best diet? Is there a best diet or are there just principles to follow in terms of whole foods, avoiding this, avoiding that? 
Yes, um, to all of that. So, uh, you know, in terms of principles, I, you know, I, I think if, if Mark and I, and, and we sort of challenge one another with this idea, you know, what's the one thing we would pull out? What's, what's sort of the, the, the signature element here? And, I, you know, I think if we had to pick just one, it would be balance. Imbalance mm-hmm. is bad. Balance is good. And, and when you think that way, it basically obliterates all the dogma, right? I mean, there's so much dogma. Saturated fat must be bad or saturated fat must be exonerated. Well, no, actually neither. If you routinely consume more than is optimal for you, it's bad, not because it's intrinsically bad. It's not like foods are you know, good or evil. It's because imbalance is always bad. You know, balance basically optimizes homeostasis, metabolism. And so if you're out of balance, the direction you're out of balance, moving further that way is bad. Moving toward balance is good. Prevailing diets in the United States are excessive and saturated fat. So, you know, it's, it's, it's bad because we get too much of it. And same with sodium. Sodium is an essential nutrient. But if you routinely consume twice as much as you need, mm-hmm. it becomes a bad actor, not because it's intrinsically bad, but because you get too much. So balance would sort of be the number one thing we'd emphasize. So we're not dogmatic. We're not ideological. Um, but you know, you get foods, right. You get the balanced assembly of foods, right. And the nutrients take care of themselves and getting out of balance is always a bad thing. Too much, too little, always bad. The other thing that we emphasized was, you know, instead of what, you know, a lot of the discussions about foods are seem to be, you know, sort of the, the intrinsic merits of a food, but you know, instead of what? So, you know, is, is dairy good or bad or eggs good or bad? Well, you know, what would you be eating instead of that? Because the answer can almost always be better than something else and not as good as some other thing. And so, you know, again, really a matter of temperance and balance. And then on the issue of diet, so I, I've written very extensively about this. I did a, a review paper for annual review of public health back in 2014. Can we say what diet is best for health? As we speak, I'm working on the fourth edition of my nutrition textbook, Nutrition and Clinical Practice. Uh, my book before, How to Eat, was the truth about food. I wrestled with it there. And, and my answer there is always the same, and, and Mark certainly subscribes to it. And that is, there is a clearly established theme of optimal nutrition for our kind of animal. So, you know, again, Michael Pollan did a nice job summing it up in seven words, eat food, not too Mm -hmm. much, mostly plants. But, you know, the idea that um, minimally processed whole foods tend to be better than more highly processed foods and all of the diets associated with the best outcomes measured in terms of what matters most, years in life, life in years, longevity and vitality um, are plant predominant up to and including plant exclusive. So that's the basic theme. Mm -hmm. But then... You know, because we're not dogmatic and we're not ideological and we recognize that not everybody's going to want to eat just one way, we acknowledge we don't have definitive proof that any one very prescriptive diet is decisively best for human health because we haven't done the studies and they'd be really hard to do, right? I mean, who's willing to be randomized to an optimal paleo diet that's you know, mostly a variety of plants but also includes venison or antelope or wild fish? versus an optimal vegan diet that has all the plant foods, beans and lentils, but excludes the venison. And, you know, you'd have to be willing to be randomized to one of those for 50 years to see which is, you know, truly better over something like a lifetime. Well, study hasn't been done. I wouldn't hold your breath waiting for it. So, you know, in the, in the absence of the kinds of studies we need to say that there actually is one winner, 
we presume there isn't one winner. There's a winning theme. There are variations on the theme. The theme is not negotiable. But it's sort of nice that we have the latitude to say to, to readers and listeners today, you know, it, it's your life. I think part of what you get to do is decide which variant on the theme works best for you. And then the final thing I'll say about, you know, that which diet is best is we didn't just look through the lens of human health. We also did talk about food production, mm-hmm. you know, sort of a strong argument for locally sourcing food, especially if you're going to eat animal foods as part of your diet, local sourcing as opposed to factory farming, really important just in terms of how we treat our fellow creatures and environmental impact, you know, arguably the signature issue of our time. So we cover all of that. And, and our, our conclusion is Mediterranean, flexitarian, vegetarian, vegan, and pescatarian, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and a lot of the stuff that our culture focuses on is nonsense, you know, low fat or high. Well, you know, it, it could be a good or bad diet either way. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, nothing but Coca-Cola and cotton candy would be a low fat diet. That wouldn't make it good. Yeah. Right. And, you know, and, and, you know, pretty much the same is true with carbohydrates. So we, we say, you know, a, a macronutrient threshold per se, which has, you know, sucked so much oxygen out of the dietary discussions doesn't reliably tell you if your diet is good or bad. So we, we emphasize the importance of foods, you know, wholesome foods in a sensible assembly, get that theme right. And then, you know, if you if you favor a low fat version of that, fine. If you favor a low-carb version of that, fine. Both of those can be done well. Just don't do any of them badly. So right. I mean, we, we try to steer around the dogma and the ideology and emphasize the theme and then allow for the variance on the theme. Well, considering all the dogma associated with going gluten-free, what, what was some of your conclusions around gluten? Because I've done a lot of research, read a lot of uh, Alessio Fasano's work and looking at you know zonulin release and tight junction disassembly. And he says that really... Anyone that consumes gluten, there is there is essentially uh, damage being done to the intestines, right? Because there is a zonulin release, regardless if you have celiac or non-celiac gluten sensitivity. So, what what kind of conclusions did you guys reach for that? Yeah, somewhat different. So that may be true, and you may be able to identify, you know, some evidence of a response. But the issue then becomes if you're going to exclude gluten despite not having celiac, not making antibodies, and not having obvious symptoms, what are you going to eat instead? So, you know, to us, um, you know, the, the, first of all, I, I'm very interested in a wide array of evidence sources. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can certainly look at, at you know, cellular metabolism and biochemistry, um, but you also then want to look at intervention studies, what happens to people who eat gluten-containing grains, and you want randomized trials over time that look at effects on surrogate markers for major chronic disease, so glucose metabolism, inflammatory markers, lipid metabolism. And then ideally, you want observational epidemiology that tells you something about the biggies. You know, did you develop diabetes, yes or no? Did you have a heart attack, yes or no? Did you die prematurely, yes or no? I've actually published on that very topic, how do we synthesize evidence from a variety of sources, um, published a paper within the past year called Hierarchies of Evidence Applied to Lifestyle Medicine. And that was the work of two years with a really great group of people. And so, you know, the, the observational epidemiology, the intervention studies consistently show health benefit, net health benefit associated with the consumption of whole grains frankly, whether they contain gluten or not. But the problem is when people systematically exclude gluten, 
all too often they wind up eating gluten-free junk food rather mm -hmm. than, okay, let, let, let me source yes. whole grains that are non-gluten containing. You know, essentially whole grains are good for people. The mm -hmm. net effect of eating whole grains is strong enough that the benefit outweighs whatever cellular biological harm there might be. Mm -hmm. But if you could if you could retain the benefit of whole grains and lose the provocation of gluten, they'd be even better. That's possible. But but our view is that, you know, one percent of the population roughly makes antibodies to gluten. They have to avoid it. So if you have celiac disease, you have to avoid gluten. About ten percent of the population has a lesser sensitivity mm -hmm. and feels better when they avoid it. And then, you know, for that group we say, okay, avoid it. Just like if you have a peanut allergy, avoid peanuts, but be careful what you eat instead. It's not a license to eat gluten-free junk food. That'll just be bad for you in a different way. For everybody else, all of the, if you aggregate the evidence, there is clear evidence of net benefit from eating whole grains. And again, you raise an interesting point, but I, I think we lack the research mm -hmm. to be that refined and say maybe you'd be even better off if you ate whole grains free of gluten. The other, the other issue is, you know, gluten, you know, it, it, it is intrinsic to wheat. It's intrinsic to wild strains of wheat, and it's been a part of the human diet minimally for 15,000 years. You know, my understanding from the literature on paleoanthropology is that there actually are some finds suggesting intake of barley and some wild varieties of wheat going back 150,000 years. Mm. So if, if we are having difficulty with gluten now, and gluten isn't the new provocation. I tend to wonder, and we talk about this a bit in the book too, is it in fact degradation of the microbiome? You know, mm. gluten may not be the problem. It, it may be the integrity of the intestinal lining is the problem. And, and so, you know, we know all the different ways that modern living is degrading the, the vitality of the microbiome. And that's a critical element in how we interact with different nutrients in the GI tract. So I don't know if it's gluten per se, even, even the literature that you're citing. Mm -hmm. Maybe that speaks to gluten, but maybe it speaks to the problem is at the receiving end. You know, we, we've all right. gut integrity, right? So anyway, that's it's a, it's a complex issue. issue. <laughs> it's a complex issue. And, 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 you know, when we don't know, that's the other thing. I, I, I think that's rare because, you know, one of the things about um, a lot of the books on diet is, you know, it's, it's one person who knows everything, right? I mean, it's my theory and I know it all. And we didn't do that. I mean, so sometimes, you know, we, we have the discussion. We acknowledge what we know. We acknowledge the limitations of, of what we don't know. Um, and so this is pretty much where we landed. And we said yeah. it's complex, but, you know, here, here's what the weight of evidence would suggest. I, and for whatever it's worth, I, you know, I eat whole grains. They're a staple in my diet. Um, I don't have any discernible symptoms. And, you know, I think the, the benefits outweigh whatever harms there may be, which is true of many other, you know, elements. I mean, you think about, the, you know, the, the provocative studies that will tell you there are, you know, carcinogens in broccoli, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you know, obviously plants make a, a, a large number of chemical compounds. Some of them are, you know, evolved as mechanisms of self-defense for the plant. And so if you isolate those compounds, you say, well, you know, some of these don't look like they're very good for people. But, you know, I think that the active ingredient in broccoli is broccoli. And if the net effect of that is good for me, I'll take my chances. So, David, I, taking into what you just said, it's kind of interesting because 
If you look at the longevity data across the world, I mean, Okinawa was just passed by uh, Spain and Portugal, and I believe Italy, uh, where the, if you look at lifespan, but there's something unique about the Mediterranean basin, you know, whether you live in Israel or Libya or Sicily or Spain, you know, there's something unique about that where you have the, you have more 100 year old plusers in the entire world in the Mediterranean basin. So what do you attribute that, that to? I mean, you know, I, I defer to the the expert on on those centenarians, Steve. So, you know, I, Dan Butner is a friend. Dan, for those who don't know, is the author of The Blue Zones. And, you know, so that Dan and the team at National Geographic identified five blue zones, two in the Mediterranean, um, Sardinia, Italy, and uh, Ikaria, Greece, and then three others, Okinawa, Japan, as you mentioned, Loma Linda, California, it's a population of Seventh-day Adventists, yeah. And and the Nicoya Peninsula in Costa Rica, and and frankly, there there are probably others, but those are the five that they've identified. And as past president of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, I describe their formula as feet, forks, fingers, sleep, stress, and love. And what I mean is physical activity, dietary patterns, not holding cigarettes with their fingers, getting ample sleep, not being stressed out, and strong social connections. Dan uses slightly different terms. Same basic idea, though, you know, that strong sense of community and purpose. Um, I think it's ikigai in, uh, in Japanese. Um, but, you know, waking every day to a sense of purpose and community is really important. Sometimes it's, it's spirituality. Um, but, you know, the, the interesting thing about the Blue Zones um, for me, since I focus on nutrition, is how they do all adhere to that theme, real food, mostly plants, balanced, time-honored, sensible assemblies. Uh, but they're really very diverse, you know, high fat in the Mediterranean countries, low fat in Okinawa and, and Loma Linda, vegetarian and vegan in Loma Linda, not so much in the other places. You know, it's, it's really interesting. So clearly, uh, you know, good illustration of adherence to the theme while allowing for uh, variation. With regard to diet, Dan um, in particular emphasizes legumes. You know, beans are really a staple they, they, across all those different cultures. Um, whole grains are also pretty much a fixture. Uh, but in other ways, you know, they're, they're quite variable. Uh, physical activity is just part of the daily routine. It's not that everybody has a gym membership, but they don't need one. You know, they're outside, they're active, they're walking. And so, you know, I, I think there are really important commonalities that reverberate through all the different aspects of lifestyle. And, and I think they're all really important. And it's extremely hard to get them all right in our crazy culture, right? I mean, it's stress and sleep and social connections. You know, it's not just diet and exercise. Right, right. But, but those are really important. So, you know, to the extent that we can imbibe the, the blue zone lessons and adopt elements, and, and I agree with you. I think you can look to the Mediterranean base and say, look, minimally two out of five blue zones are in that part of the world. And there are probably more that you know, we just haven't identified yet. So what is it we can learn? But it, you know, the, the Mediterranean lifestyle is different from ours in lots of ways. It's, it's not just that their diet's better. Right, right. And you know, I, I, to the extent that we can adopt the, the, the full Monty, we should. The sad thing, and I'm sure you know this, Steve, is you know, given the, the, the way the world is shifting, instead of us adopting a Mediterranean lifestyle, and a Mediterranean diet? No, no, we're exporting, you know, Coca-Cola, McDonald's, and Dunkin' Donuts to them. So, you know, the, the question is whether these blue zones will persist. And, and you know, one of the things we need to see is what happens in the aftermath of the pandemic. How does, maybe, maybe that disrupts some of these trends that were not favorable 
maybe it's a reset. And, and again, back to prior discussion, you know, maybe there's some opportunity to make lemonade from the lemons here. Right, right. You know, I, I, I was interested in your response because when I was researching one of my books years ago, I looked at the island of Crete in the Mediterranean. And there wasn't one recorded heart attack over a 10-year period. And being a heart specialist, and, wow. and the island of Crete, I mean, they had a sizable population for not one heart attack for 10 years. So I looked at it, you know, very carefully. And it's exactly what you said, you know, it was a diet, it was a lifestyle, it was their afternoon lunches, it was men playing chess with one another. It was like, yeah. it was incredible. Yeah, but, yeah, uh, amazing. You're, you're absolutely right. It's uh, the the diet plays a huge role, huge role, but there's other lifestyles. There's other, other elements, yeah. But but again, I think you know, regardless of exactly what the active ingredients are, the value proposition for people in this country is that this number one cause of a premature death in men and women alike is almost completely preventable. You know, I mean, it, it's easy to say, really easy to say that 80% of all heart disease could be eliminated. But I, I think, Steve, you and I would dare say this disease could be eradicated. You know, coronary artery disease mm. could kind of be like smallpox if we decided to make it so. Almost none of it needs to happen. Uh, there might be the very rare individual with some genetic polymorphism where, you know, they're really very prone. But, you know, at the population level, coronary artery disease doesn't need to happen. And so, yeah, I mean, I think we've got evidence from really diverse populations. It's not genes. It's not like, you know, cretin yeah. genes protect you or Chimani genes protect you. No, no. Across a vast expanse of human variation, you get the lifestyle right, coronary disease does not need to happen. Um. I agree 100%. It is a lifestyle disease. I think we'll wrap up here with our, our wellness wisdom, if you're okay with that. If you had one big pearl of wisdom for our, our listeners right now, for your book, How to Eat, what would that pearl of wisdom be? Uh, there should be no dogma on your menu. You know, there really is no narrow prescription uh, for the best diet. There's a theme, and there's room in that theme to do diet the way you want to do diet. And Frankly, food should be a source of pleasure. And, and if I may just embellish it slightly, Drew, I'd, I'd remind people about a question I think we often fail to ask, and that is, what is health for? You know, it, it may seem, particularly, you know, you get a bunch of doctors together and we talk to you about health, and you may feel like, you know, health is a moral imperative. You should be healthy because we say so, but you know, that's not the point. Mm. Healthy people have more fun. You know, really, it's yeah. you do this because you want to do it. And and when you think of it that way, when you realize that, the, you know, the reason to care so much about health is more years in your life, more life in your years, your, your life is just better. Then you, you really don't want to give up the pleasure of good food for the sake of good health. You want to balance the two. And I truly believe you can. I think you can maximize the sum of pleasure from the, the, the enjoyment of eating and pleasure from the enjoyment of being vital. And you put those two things together, it's a winning formula. Well, David, from talking to you today, you are all about balance on all across the field there. So I love, I love speaking to you about all this stuff. Um, thanks so much for coming on our show. Yeah, David, it, thanks so much. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. It was Easy. a lot of fun. Easy. Really a pleasure, gentlemen. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. I enjoyed it tremendously. That's our show for today, folks. If you have a question or an idea for a show topic, please send us an email or share a post with us on Facebook. And remember... If you like what you heard today and you want to be an active member of the Be Healthistic community, subscribe to our podcast at BeHealthisticPodcast.com or on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your favorites. 
You can also find more great content and information from us and the Healthy Directions team at HealthyDirections.com. I'm Dr. Drew Sinatra. And I'm Dr. Steve Sinatra. And this is Be Healthistic. Thanks for listening to Be Healthistic with Drs. Drew and Steve Sinatra, powered by our friends at Healthy Directions. See you next time.